Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. Today's guest is Melanie Katzman, and the topic is Connect First, Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. Dr. Melanie Katzman is a business psychologist, advisor, and consultant to the world's top public and private companies, government agencies, and nonprofits. She's a founder of Katzman Consulting and a founding partner of the global nonprofit Leaders Quest. She was a senior fellow at the Wharton School Center for Leadership and Change Management and co-created slash hosted the show Women at Work on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. She's been featured in the Financial Times, New York Times, O Magazine, South China Morning Post, Vanity Fair, and on ABC TV, CBS TV, and Lifetime. She lives in New York City. So we are really lucky to have Melanie as a guest. We're going to be talking about her new book, Connect First, 52 Simple Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work where she gives actionable advice on restoring joy and amplifying success at work through the power of human connection. And her dual roles as a therapist and a consultant to companies on six continents, she found that connecting first as humans and then colleagues, co-workers, and community members is the solution to almost any conflict encountered by both her clinical patients and her corporate clients. So, Melanie, first, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really delighted to, to dive into your new book. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen, and I thank you for the wonderful introduction. So, do you want to tell us anything about what drew you to write the book before we jump into it? Absolutely. As you were saying, I, I've been a consultant to large corporations, small startups, and at the same time, practicing as a clinical psychologist, seeing people on an individual basis for therapy. So it's been an unusual insight into kind of the inner workings of one's mind and heart. And what I found was that whether I was seeing people in the corner office or in the conference room or in my clinic, that what was repeatedly coming up is that people had a desire to belong, to be recognized, to feel motivated and at home at work. And instead of being satisfied by many of the easy things, they were derailed by things that could have easily been changed. And so I thought, you know, I've learned a lot, seen a lot. I've taught many of the same lessons in a variety of different settings. And I wanted to codify those learnings in a way that made it easy for people to do the right thing for themselves and others at work. Yeah, this seems so important because for people of my age, so 50-ish, 
mm-hmm. I joined the workforce at a time where where I was taught that you have friends at home, you come to work to get the work done, and you're really not supposed to make friends or connect or do any of that stuff. You've got a job to do. And so this seems really important for managers and leaders who are of a, a different mindset to really adjust how we think about how we interact at work because it matters and we're more effective. I couldn't agree more, Maureen. You know, we all have been trained, many of us, on this convenient fiction that all you need to do is get a job description, show up, collect your salary, and follow your task list, and somehow magically things are going to happen. But the truth is that organizations are run by people, and people run on emotions. And if we can unlock those emotions, recognize them, and actually use them to catapult us to greater heights of connection and passion, everybody wins. But too often we pretend that they're not there, stifle them, and suffer as a result. So I, I want to make a comment to some of our listeners who are inclined immediately to drop out as soon as we mention the word emotions, mm-hmm. and they pride themselves on being Spock-like, that a not an inability or an unwillingness to recognize our emotions doesn't mean they're not there, and it doesn't mean that they don't impact us. We just don't pay attention to them. And in fact, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to position the book and ultimately said, I have to come clean and say it as it is. Feelings matter. Emotions are the ultimate disruptor. So at a time when people are looking at technology and have their concerns or excitements about artificial intelligence, what we could easily forget is that it is still a human experience. And if we don't connect to our users, to our colleagues, to our community, we're not going to be able to have the results we want. And so rather than being afraid of emotions, let's talk about them, let's get the tools out there, and let's see how technology and efficiency and reason can all sit alongside us and be made better by emotion. I love that positioning. It's not only emotions. It's not only reason. It's not only technology, but the combination of the three leads to really powerful performance. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, as with anything, we want to get the right balance. You know, people say, oh, emotions at work, that could be messy and dangerous. And absolutely, if people are coming in and screaming and crying and giggling at all times without any boundaries, that's not appropriate. But when I'm talking about emotions at work, I'm recognizing that we run on two different highways, if you will. You know, we have the superhighway, which is emotion that goes direct to the heart, motivates us in many ways without us having to think and analyze. And then we also have our left brain, which does the computational and analytical work. And both of those are necessary in order to get the job done. So too much of either we're going to be out of balance, but we need to recognize the contributions of both sides of our, our brains and our being. Beautiful. I think that's a great way to position it. So what are some examples of how we botch opportunities to connect at work? So some of the most simple ones, um, and when I tell you, you, know, you may recognize yourself or your colleagues, is that you know, we come into the office, we don't make eye contact. We're staring at our phones, we have our noise-canceling headphones on, and we're not even acknowledging the people that we see or ride the elevator with. Now, so people will say to me, how do I network? I'm like, well, for starters, maybe talk to the people that are riding 35 floors in your elevator with you. 
No, people are just immersed in their own inner being and failing to see those that are around them. So that's easy. Make eye contact, say hello, start a conversation, ask people what their name is, and then call them by their name. That's like the basic. But we miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we think about trends... I assume this has gotten worse over time as we have cell phones and as our lives get busier. What what are the trends that you see that have caused us to forget how to connect as humans or or for those of us who maybe never were good at it and it gives us an excuse? Right. So but one of the things I was going to say is, you know, we 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 miss we, we, we err on the side of not even being polite because we want to be efficient and fast, right? So when I talk about saying hello, we can continue that on to like, we don't say please and thank you. We don't praise people. We don't even pause to say good morning on an email with someone we're going to be writing with all day. So part of, I think, the trend is that for sure technology is a factor because we have this sense of being connected, but we are interconnected through our technology, but we're not connected on a human level. And we have remote working, which is a real boon for people who need flexibility. We'd be able to bring people into the workforce that might not otherwise be. But if we're not intentional, it's easy to be out of sight and out of mind. So I think technology is one of the contributors. Another is speed. You know, we expect communication to be instantaneous now. So as soon as I send you something, I expect a response. And in that lightning fast expectation, there's no room for some of the basic niceties that allow you to know who you're dealing with and what other pressures they may have and what you could do to help each other shine. So those two, and I'll throw one more out there and then I'll pause, which is office design. You know, we have these open office plans, which are meant to stimulate interaction, but often what's happening is that people need to laser in on their own work, and as a result, they're putting on headsets and trying actively to block each other out. So I think that's yet another unintended consequence of some of our modern workforce. You know, as I started my career, I was, of course, in a cubicle, and we didn't have headsets. It was considered unprofessional and there there was a lot of buzz of sound that was distracting I have to admit that but we also kind of just talked through the cubicle walls and we'd hear people talking about things and and it was in some cases insightful and informative to the work we were doing so so again with everything there there are two sides to it exactly I mean you think about in some um, developing countries where people lead their life more on the street because they don't have the kind of shelter or homes that we have become accustomed to in our urban, urban environment, you see people almost creating privacy in a very public situation. And I think about that in the cubicle farms that many people work in now, where you're actively trying to give someone privacy or achieve it yourself. So this great public living is actually having the effect that we're seeking out a way to, to encapsulate ourselves, And that's not the intent, because the intent was exactly as you described, which is I learn something because I hear what my colleague is saying, I have an impromptu conversation, but in some, many instances now, it's not happening. And so how does this lack of connection get in the way of us reaching our goals? And let me ask a second question. Is it different for women than men? Okay, so let me separate those two. So I think the first is that we have people collecting 
you know, friends and likes um, and followers, but they're not necessarily having relationships. And in the absence of relationships, people feel lonely. And what we see now is that reports of loneliness at work are at an all-time high. And when people are lonely, they disengage. They show up, they go through the motions, but they don't actually share information. They don't put their best foot forward. They're not their most productive. So one of the consequences of not connecting is we have a disengaged, lonely, often depressed work environment that then is diminishing the resource that people are paying for. So one of the you know, negative consequences of not connecting is disengaged, unhappy workers. Of course, the good news is that quality connections can have the opposite effect, um, which allows us to actually generate activity. Um, and I can speak to the women's difference if you want, or give me a second if you want to react to what I just said. Yeah, I, um, I understand the, the idea of loneliness at work and how damaging, and, and as a psychotherapist, you can probably talk about that much better than I can, but sure. it's curious that we can sit in a workplace all day long and feel lonely, and it seems quite sad to me. And, and we feel like we, we're not, we feel lonely and we feel like we don't belong. You know, we all want to have our tribe. And when people talk about diversity and inclusion projects and initiatives at work, I often think that they're missing the mark because mm. it's not identifying the small behaviors that enable people to feel like they're a part of things. So it's inviting someone and saving a seat for them, not being afraid to ask about the headdress that they wear that's so colorful or the spicy food that they're eating. That you know, sometimes in an effort to be inclusive, we ignore difference and in ignoring that difference, ignore the personal signature that somebody has and as a result, make it actually lonelier rather than more encompassing. So there's ways in which I think we can generate positive warmth between people and people of real difference if we allow ourselves to take some time to just make that, that human personal connection. And those are those quick moments of small talk, asking a question, people put pictures up on their desk or in their office. Be curious, you know, ask what somebody's name means. Ask what brought them here. There's so many clues around that enable you to take two or three minutes, ask a question that demonstrates to somebody, I see you beyond your role. Well, and I think that small gesture also helps us feel safe and connected to innovate. If I don't feel safety and trust with my colleagues, I'm also less likely to try new tasks, do the uh, implement the changes that the organization is trying to implement. It, it seems like it inhibits all kinds of forward-moving behaviors, and I'll stay in a protective mode if I'm not connected. A hundred percent. So oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone, is the feel-good hormone. It allows us to feel safe. When we feel safe, we take risk. To innovate, you must be able to make an error, to feel as though you will be protected by your peers and not pounced upon. So that sense of bonding is not just a little feel good, nice to have, ooh, emotions, aren't they cute? It is really critical if you're going to run an innovative organization. People need psychological safety. That safety comes and is experienced at the biological level through the release of oxytocin. 
So I want to restate that before we go on break, and please add to this, that the bonding, connecting with other people, building strong connections is absolutely foundational to being able to innovate. That actually the oxytocin that's oxytocin that's released in our brains uh, allows us to connect and then take risks and trust that we are psychologically safe. And absent that, we create an environment that is less able to innovate. Is that an accurate statement? That's, that's a beautiful summary. And after the break, if you want, we can talk about the flip side of that, which is the release of cortisol, which happens when we feel like we're under threat. And a social threat is experienced in the same way that physical pain is experienced, and the reaction is often very destructive for the individual, for the environment, and for the innovative process. Beautiful. Thank you. So we'll do that after break. And for our listeners, as we go on break, I encourage you to think about who you connect with at work and how does that promote your success? And on the flip side, what are the opportunities for you to connect with additional people that would promote your success and theirs? You're listening to Melanie Katzman and Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking about Connect First. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. We are talking about the power of connection. So before break, we talked about oxytocin and how the release of that hormone in our brain allows us to connect and innovate. And you also mentioned the release of cortisol, which does the opposite. Can you talk a little bit about that feeling of being disconnected and what it does physiologically to us? 
Absolutely, Maureen. Thanks for the opportunity. So, you know, when we sense danger, we prepare to fight or to flee. And that generates our um, escape response, and that is driven by cortisol. And so if we are left out of a meeting, we're not recognized for our efforts, we have been slighted, those kinds of psychic hurts release cortisol, it wears the body down, it prepares people to fight, which then closes down our ability to think broadly, because if you can imagine that the blood flows out of your brain and into your extremities, I'm ready to punch or run. That's not the way we want to be at work. We want to assume just the opposite. So when you have your cortisol running through you, you are physiologically operating against effectiveness. So connectivity produces oxytocin, good. Anxiety, tension produces cortisol, bad. And so we want to make for the best environment physiologically for ourselves and also from a productivity perspective for the organization at large. So for, again, listeners who think this is just the soft girl thing, it's important to hear, and um, Melanie is a faculty at Cornell uh, Medical School, so from a scientist and, and someone who is qualified to make these comments, we physiologically respond to a feeling of connection or disconnection that is unavoidable. So how we behave toward one another directly impacts productivity, which for many of us, again, if we grew up with the message that you come in and do your work, the latest research is saying that that is, in fact, a very incomplete view and and simple and, and some not so simple processes of connecting to people and and building a deeper collaboration physiologically enables us to feel safe and innovate in ways that we cannot do if our body's flooded with cortisol. So, Melody, do you want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, so actually in the book, I have seven sections. And it starts with established respect, and then it's really about becoming a magnet, being a per- being a, first is establishing respect, the second is using your senses, seeing, hearing, eating together, the third is becoming self-aware, being more of a magnet, the next is about building loyalty, and then the next section is really about clearing conflict, and then I go to fighting fear, and I ultimately end with leveraging your impact. And it's an arc from kind of the simplest to the more complex. And I put fighting fear in as its own section because we too often end up reacting in a way that we don't either want to own our fear or anxiety or we push it away or we allow it to close our minds, our doors, our thinking. And when we think about innovation, when we think about the future and all the unknowns, it's easy to get terrified and kind of go on mental and physical lockdown. And as a result, we stop seeking novel information. And so I encourage people to be a little bit terrified, to allow themselves to go outside their comfort zone, to bring people in that they are not comfortable with, to bring ideas in that you're not comfortable with. But the only way you can do that is if you feel safe. And so in order to counteract the fear that is destructive, we need to be able to create safety. In order to create safety, we need to create the bonds and connection between people enable us to feel like it is okay to go ahead 
to stumble, to fail, to be uncomfortable, to have our ideas challenged, to bring in the unknown, whether it's a concept or a fellow colleague. So that argues then that bringing people's emotions in is central to connecting and and innovating, innovating, right? I mean, it's, it's so Mm -hmm. central. Like if, if you pretend like we all know what a pot that's boiling with the top on, you know, looks like it looks like an accent waiting to happen. The top blows off and all the steam comes out. And I think we see that in kind of the environments that don't allow people to express themselves just, you know, Buck up and bear it. Just, you know, let there's no time to deal with, yes, sure, we're going through a merger and acquisition, a major downsizing, an extreme upsizing. This creates anxiety and people get frightened and they don't behave well towards each other. And so, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is share information. It's a great virtual value. Bring the anxiety down. I don't care how good your team is. If they don't know what's going on, they make up what's going on. And usually what they make up is not really as good as what could possibly be happening. And in that kind of gossip mill, anxiety mill, people and their reputations get damaged. So this is anything but light flow, right? This is biology working for us. And then this is really understanding the impacts of what it means to be a flesh, heart-beating human. (laughs) You can't deny it. Well, and again, that's where I think what you're talking about is such an important ad for anyone who's an effective leader and anyone who wants to grow into an effective leader is that we are biological beings and ignoring our biology doesn't make it go away. It just means that it will express itself without our ability to manage it. Yes, very well said. And so if we don't manage it, then it comes up, it surprises us, and it surprises other people. One of the things I found as a therapist and as a coach is that people are continually surprised that other people have emotions. It's like, <laughs> like, do you think you're the only one who's upset or angry or feels slighted or wish that you had you know, the proper recognition for the work that you did? One of the chapters in the book you know, talks about using your own emotions to decode the emotions of your colleagues. And I talk about checking the emotional mirror. If you feel it, they likely feel it. If you're feeling that your work is a demeaning environment, it's a really good um, chance that the people around you feel that way too, and you're probably contributing to it. So rather than pretending it's not going on, label it, talk about it, clear it, and go on. You know, there's a mistake, I think, in believing that good relationships are ones that don't have conflict. It's just the opposite. A good relationship is based on the ability to clear conflict, to know that you won't be broken as a result of it. So a lot of the work I do with people and the tools I have in the book are about being unafraid to have the complex conversation because you will end up moving faster if you take the time to have that conversation. And if you clear the air, you release the negative energy that goes to feeling hostile and angry and give people the energy and the capacity to do the work in a very positive, productive way. And I'm assuming that's in the business context that that we as humans get frustrated with our colleagues 
on a regular basis or with yeah. some regularity. A lot of people get frustrated with each other on a regular basis by assuming bad intentions and don't have the best conversations. In the mm-hmm. work, but in the workplace, it's really profound because it's in some companies it's not allowed. Right? So you know this idea that we just do the work. But it, it's not the case. And even when I'm you know, working with some of the most systematized engineers, when they are interfacing with, the, you know, when the product team is interfacing with the, the, the user experience team, the customer um, service team, there's emotions that are running between these teams that if they don't address, no matter how complex their flowchart is, they're not going to get the work done. So it is important to be able to recognize certain situations are evocative of emotion. It's usually around when there's change or when there's an elephant in the room, when things aren't being stated. So I like to normalize the notion that there's going to be emotion all the time. We find the appropriate release for it. And we don't just linger there. You keep moving on. So, you know, to go back to that fear of I'm going to get mushy. No, you're not going to get mushy. You're not going to lose direction. What loses direction is people coming into a room with their own agendas and their own private dialogues in their head that aren't then being shared out loud and being resolved. So would you say more about the private dialogues in our head? And one of the things that you said that seems so important to me is assuming positive intent, which can be hard to do if you've been stung and I'm working with some people right now and it's just fascinating that they're in a great place right now in their careers but they've been bitten earlier and they're still years later in some cases uh, guarded Mm. because of something that has been incredibly painful so losing a job being betrayed by a colleague those things seem to linger and and the the folks i'm talking about good successful people but they're not fully present because they continue to maybe mistrust just a little bit the people with whom they should have the most constructive relationships with so they don't share some of the the more sensitive information that can make or break the relationship uh, so I, that's 100% true i often you know i started my career as an experimental um, psychologist and i continue to look for data and I encourage people that work with me to do experiments, to test out their hypothesis. You may be running around with a certain mindset, a certain set of assumptions that you haven't tested. So you may have had a very negative experience early on, and then you just continually, co- continually collect only affirming data for your negative assumption. So I encourage people to experiment, try a different perspective, see what happens if they put out a different attitude or start a conversation or approach somebody in a different way. And so it is common that people get into certain loops. They have a view about who they think they are or how people see them. And I encourage people to experiment with that and to test out whether or not the conversation you're having, what I call conversation in your head, which are in a dialogue, is actually the conversation that would happen if you spoke to the person. I can't tell you how many times people haven't had a direct conversation. And it seems so obvious and it's so hard. Like I sometimes think what's the big summary statement of what my career has been is getting people to have the conversations they might not otherwise have had. 
You know, one other thing you said, I love the idea of experimenting. And I talk often about experimenting with processes or technology, but but you raise the topic of experimenting with behaviors. So what happens if I typically, in the morning, I'm a little distant because I haven't had my coffee. What happens if I show up really excited to be in a meeting early in the morning, which would not be my natural inclination? How would that change the dynamics with the people in the room. Wait, so that if you show up without your coffee in the morning? Oh, no, 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 no. If I drink more coffee earlier, so I show up happy at a 7 a.m. meeting. Okay, yeah, and I think that this is part of the fun, right? Which is, um, why not try it? And I actually, I give people that work with me little paper books that fit into their pockets because like, either keep a note on your phone, but better, in uh, on paper because there's something very intimate about that where you say I'm just going to try having as you say I'll have a coffee or I'm going to walk to work I'm going to take I'm going to park a little bit further away or take an earlier train station and just walk for a few minutes because and see whether being in the fresh air brings me into a different mindset when I walk in the door right or um what happens if I introduce myself at a meeting each time in a different way Am I highlighting different things about what I'm doing that make people know me in a broader context? And am I then modeling an opportunity for people to share more of themselves and get to know each other differently? I mean, there's uh, the book is filled with ways in which you do these little things, whether it be, you know, even kind of taking a different path to go to the to the restroom. Who do you pass? Do you pass different people? What if you put your phone in your pocket or left it on the desk? and made sure that you stopped at least one desk on your way back. I mean, there's just all these little behaviors are opportunities to have a wholly different experience. Well, and I love that I don't have to change entirely my being to make this work. I can start with a technique or a couple of techniques. And the one of putting my phone down and going for a walk is really helpful for me. When I have that phone, I'm continually paying attention to it. When I leave it at home and go for a walk during lunch, I actually pick my head up and notice the trees and the road I'm walking on rather than being a little too focused on that electronic device, even if I'm not looking at it. And I'll I'll give you another example of that. So I work with a lot of senior leaders who are told that they are arrogant or aloof. And when I give them that feedback, they're shocked. Like, what? I'm just a a nice, normal guy or gal. And I'm just busy. And I say, okay, um, if I go back to my restroom example and let biology work for you, I said to one of the gentlemen I was working with, can I just watch you as you walk down the hall? And I watched him. He's on his phone as he's walking down the hall to, to go have his bio break. I'm like, you know what? People are watching you, and what they see is you're not seeing them. And mm-hmm. this is arrogant. So you think that you are just taking a walk, going to do whatever you need to do. But people, when you're particularly in a leadership position, watch your behaviors closely and then make assumptions about what that means for them. And it often isn't very pretty. And you have offended people for reasons you couldn't even imagine. And I'm probably one of those guilty people. So as we go on break, I I would invite our listeners to think about how do we disrupt our habits, whether it's taking a different path or a different emphasis on our technology so that we can connect with one more person, two more people, and experience ourselves also differently in the workplace. Because as we 
connect more, we will also have more oxytocin and less cortisol. And and if we notice, we should feel more connected and have more opportunity to feel that psychological safety and try something else new, which could innovate our entire organization. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. You are joining Maureen Metcalf and... Melanie Katzman, and we are talking about Melanie's book, Connect First, 52 Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work. So, Melanie, as we prepared for the conversation, we talked about the gender differences between women and men and how often having emotion and being responsible for making sure people feel connected falls to women. So can you say a little bit about both the stereotypical roles and your research? Absolutely. So um, there's a couple of different ways to approach this. One is that I think that women have historically been penalized at work for being too emotional. So if a woman shows too much emotional, she's being irrational, she's out of touch. So her expression of passion can operate against her. There's many women who, when they get frustrated, do get close to tears and then feel like that's going to undermine their integrity at the office. And so in a lot of ways, women have been taught to downplay their emotion at work. But there's a real asset that women do have in terms of being perhaps a bit more socially um, trained 
and skills, and some might even argue biologically predisposed to the oxytocin connection, such that women are able to read what's going on. And rather than try to suppress that because it isn't professional, I encourage women to pay attention to how they are feeling and to use that as one of their superpowers. And so when I talk about you know, having conversations that are complicated or difficult, Yes, if you are a female and you feel like you have your sensors out and you are picking things up, have those conversations. But don't be the only one to have it. Don't have it be that when someone has a problem, they come to you and they don't come to your male colleagues. Because one of the things that's always scarce in the office is time. And many women end up being the emotional vessel. So when we talk about emotions at work, I want women to be comfortable with them to recognize that it is okay to feel them, to express them, to use them, to bring other people in to help motivate and encourage. But equally, one needs to share that out. It is not the responsibility of the women at work to be the den mother for everybody else that's there. And actually to help and give confidence to some of your colleagues who may not be quite as comfortable. And sometimes that falls along gender lines. I love the idea that women shouldn't be responsible for, but that we should all, irrespective of gender or nationality, because from different cultures, we we perceive emotion and our roles in showing them also differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the, the suggestions I have, which have to do with spending time actually eating, sharing food with each other. You know, there are companies that give food as a way of keeping people hostage. And that's a different kind of experience of, you know, you can't leave, you have to eat at the, at the cafeteria or we're putting out snacks because we don't want you to leave your desk. That mm-hmm. keeps people to be actually captivating in a negative sense of the word. But on the other hand, you know, having a lunch together makes a difference. Having a coffee, people, you know, too often will sit at their desk with their headset on, order their food off of their app. And then, you know, watch, you know, somebody's Instagram feed during their break as opposed to actually having food with somebody around them. And so I do talk in the book about the ways in which we can share our food and our history and get to know each other. But caution that women shouldn't become the office bakers or entertainers. You know, look for opportunities to spend time with your colleagues, but don't make that the woman in the kitchen work because then we're falling into a negative gender. Um, stereotype. You know, one of the things in our competency model, one one of the seven is innately collaborative mm-hmm. and connection. This seems like this is uh, some of the traits would be more stereotypically women and some of them would be more stereotypically male. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that women are more collaborators and men are more scientific, but we often assign those behaviors, some to women and some to men. And if we are to be the best leaders, men will need to take on some behaviors like this that are more associated with women. And we as women also need to step into a zone that is less comfortable. So that may mean we step back and don't take on those roles as often. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I have in my chap, my section on fighting fear is be a good host. Now that seems like an odd thing to have, particularly later on in the book as things get more complicated. But actually, if people don't feel comfortable 
then you're not going to be able to bring individuals in who have opposing views, unfamiliar ideas, and have them have the conversation you need to have. So I encourage people when you're hosting a meeting to make sure everyone knows who's in the room, they have the Wi-Fi password, they know where they can plug in if they need to, and that you introduce people in a way that they have a sense of belonging, they feel pride and being there. These all seem like little touches you give conversation starters. They're not small details. They are a way in which you make people relax or you enable them to relax such that then when you facilitate the conversation, you're getting at the ideas that people need to bring forward versus confronting the block that happens when people are agitated. And so, again, depending on how you were raised, it is sometimes more likely that the woman is the one who ends up paying attention to the seating arrangement. It's not a small detail. And everyone should learn that skill. Too often people put a lot of money into bringing um, their colleagues together and then don't think about who's sitting with who, who's getting exposed to who. So you come, you fly in, you have the expensive offsite and you leave and you still haven't taken advantage of the opportunity to really get to know each other. And it's one of the reasons I say that this book is one of the cheapest you know, culture change programs out there for a company, because it's not about big events. It's about taking advantage of all of those moments between people and using them as an opportunity to ignite the conversation and the exchange and making of meaning. And I think that's another important component that I can't go connect at the big corporate uh, offsite and then come home and behave as if I'm, I've never met these people. Right. So, people often do, right? I mean, it's just terrible. But, mm-hmm. you know. so, so in the spirit of both working with teams and the practices we can do on an ongoing basis, so just like I don't need to join an expensive gym to be fit, it helps, but I do push-ups and squats at home in a, and I walk on a regular basis. The same, using a similar metaphor that I don't need to go do expensive off-sites. So for listeners who don't have big budgets to do off-sites, what things can I do as a leader to help my team connect just as human beings? So one of the things that I always suggest is make sure when you start a meeting, whether it's a virtual meeting or one that's in person, make sure everyone knows who's in the room. Make eye contact with everybody. Make sure everybody is introduced by name and that they are welcomed in some way by what they may contribute to the meeting. So you're basically setting a stage of pride. And that includes who's on the phone, who's on the screen, who's at the table. Um, So it's one way that we just make sure everybody has even a minute to kind of whiz around the room and just say, what's top of mind, right? Just so we know where people are at, we center it. We sense, we know whether or not the topic at hand is really the topic that needs to be addressed. So that's one way. Another is I really encourage people to sound so small, but when you're starting your day's work, say Good morning, even if you if you are virtually connected. You can email all day long, say good morning, say good night. It gives people also the boundaries. When you are saying good night, have a good day, you're saying, we're saying that this day is over. And particularly if people aren't in this co-located, it's hard to mm-hmm. the visual cue. And people need to know that they can leave or that the day is ending. I encourage people to do something so simple, two words, say got it. If you receive a request, acknowledge it. 
even better acknowledge when you're going to be able to respond to it. But don't let things go into the ether. People then generate all sorts of concerns that may not be appropriate. I don't matter. They're not responding to me. And all you're doing is collecting the information you need to respond to the request. But if someone doesn't know. So there's so many instances in which we don't communicate to people the most um, basic things like, I got your request and I'm responding. And yet that allows people to manage their time, to be able to know whether or not their message has been received. And that gives people not only a sense of respect, but a sense of autonomy. And that is really an important part of feeling good at work. You know, the, the got it is such an interesting topic. I facilitated a session with the CEO and his top leaders recently. And one of their complaints was that he never said thank you. Mm-hmm. And his sense of it made sense, which was, you've sent me things and more emails just saying got it or thank you or whatever is one more email you need to respond to and their response was but we spent all this time we jumped through hoops all day long to get you stuff and not even a simple acknowledgement makes us feel completely unvalued it was just such an easy opportunity and he took it and did well but that feedback that using the habits you're talking about to acknowledge and thank or acknowledge uh, and just even acknowledge is so simple right like mm-hmm. I, I, we all want to be seen and we want our work to be seen and you know there can be thank you after I've read the product that you sent but just tell me you got it right otherwise I'm sitting here and I don't know is he not answering because I did it wrong do I need to write back what's the appropriate amount of time I can wait before I ask If it's my boss, I worry if I did something wrong. If it's a subordinate that doesn't respond, you think that they don't care. And oftentimes people are just, they're doing their work. And they think that they're going to avoid cluttering your inbox. It's like, you know what? Err on the side of letting somebody know that you've received it and make them really happy if you wanted to. And I encourage it to say, I got it. And I'm going to come back with a a fuller answer on this date or in this hour. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that, that this averts is, and I can't, it's embarrassing to see how often this has happened, I'll start an email, it'll go into my draft folder, it completely escapes my mind, and the person on the other end is left hanging, yep. that, that if we are also creating the opening to say, hey, haven't heard back from you, or whatever appropriate response, yep. people that work with me expect a response. And if they don't get one, I hope that they feel comfortable enough to reach out and say, hey, I haven't heard back from you yet, rather than thinking I'm an idiot and haven't responded. Or that they think that you're brilliant and they're too afraid to even ask you because you're off doing something lofty. And I think that that gets into this whole idea about being a magnet, that you want to be the person that people will come to. And you're in a position where people don't give you information because they're afraid to, because of either the consequences of being punished for not knowing something or giving, you know, bad news. That's very dangerous. I mean, you know, we all need to get the information that's going to help us course correct. And whenever people don't feel like they can come to you, then you end up losing. Right. So I'm always looking for ways for people to help their colleagues, no matter the level in the organization, approach them because you would want to know that someone's waiting for something in your draft box but if they don't want to ask you then they're uncomfortable 
there's tension between you and you just feel like he's like an idiot. Like it was just there. It was nothing, no big deal. I just forgot. But it has very negative consequences for the people around you. So we want to make sure people can reach out and say, yep, hey, can you just give me that? Can you send me that? But that requires a foundation and that goes back to that foundation of trust. And that happens from those little moments. It doesn't happen from one offsite where you have, you know, a, a shared day or weekend. It comes from those interactions that tell me, I know you see me, value me, and will respond to me. Beautiful. I, I think that is so important. You talk about in your book that people can, quote, make over their daily habits, especially the bad habits. Mm-hmm. And I think you've been sharing a lot of that. Can you, in the last few minutes, give us a few more tips for things we just should be thinking about? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to always keep in mind is that every job has the opportunity to make a difference for yourself and the people around you. And that you know, oftentimes we talk about passion-driven organizations and people fret about how do I instill meaning and passion. And it's in those interactions between people. When you remember to thank somebody, when you introduce them to an idea or a person that they didn't otherwise know, when you share information that makes other people be smarter. I always say come with conversational gifts. Do a little bit of research. Come and not just share the kind of the office obvious information. What's something that would enable the person you're with to feel smarter, to have an increased mm. vision? So that we have opportunities all the time to enjoy each other and to enjoy ourselves. And I hope in writing this book that I just give people that optimistic view that work can be tough, but it doesn't have to be. Thank you so much. I just noticed the time, so we're going to wrap up. I love the idea of helping people feel smarter. So human connection feels good for good reason. It activates oxytocin and protects us from the stress hormone cortisol. And when we're in this state, our productivity and capability for almost anything is heightened. So when we're in the state of feeling connection, but even when we're convinced that connecting with people works, it's challenging to know how to be in the here and now for most of our workday. So Melanie's book, Connect First, in her book, she provides 52 simple ways to ignite success, meaning and joy at work. And she has graciously shared several of those with us. Melanie, as we wrap up, what? how would people reach you? Do you have a book site beyond yes. going to Amazon and buying your book? Sure. So um, people can um, follow me at Melanie Katzman on Twitter. My Facebook page is Melanie Katzman PhD. Um, there's all sorts of ways to buy the book, learn some um, additional tips that aren't included in the book. Um, the book goes on sale October 22nd, but pre-order is happening now, so be the first to start the conversation and to connect. Um, and I you know, love the conversation I'm having with you and with anybody who wants to reach out to me because I think this is just so important for the future of work. Melanie, thank you so much for sharing, for writing the book and sharing so generously of your time and insights. Our listeners, we appreciate you joining the show and hope that you found this useful and specifically will take something you heard today from Melanie and put it into practice in your own life and will connect more effectively with the people with whom you work and also with people you care about in your community and your family and in your neighborhood. We welcome your feedback. Either email me at info at innovateleader.com. I can also be located on LinkedIn, Maureen Metcalf, 
or Facebook Innovating Leadership. We look forward to you joining us again in the near future. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.